Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Western Flycatcher is back, but truly, was it ever really gone? The North American Classification Committee of the American Ornithological Society, henceforth the AOSNACC, has officially published their updates to the AOS bird checklist, which are automatically adopted by the ABA's checklist, but not for eBird, for what it's worth, although there is a considerable amount of overlap. In any case, the changes are out, and the biggest one is the expected lump of Pacific Slope and Cordilleran flycatcher back together as Western flycatcher, eliminating all the parsing, all the confusion, and all the need for us to come to a consensus on how to pronounce Cordilleran. I've already done it both ways here. I still don't know which one to use. But all that is behind us. No more slashes. No more spuzz. Welcome to the Western world. Other notable changes went the other way two splits that affected the ABA checklist this year. Northern Goshawk was split roughly by hemisphere into what is now the uninspired but geographically appropriate American Goshawk and Eurasian Goshawk. Remember that American in this context refers to the Americas, not the USA. The ABA area does have four records of Eurasian Goshawk, interestingly enough, three from where else but Alaska and the fourth from Labrador. Also, Common House Martin was split into Western House Martin of Western Eurasia and Siberian House Martin of East Asia. The ABA area has records of both. Siberian, once again, is a rare but regular vagrant, mostly to the Bering Sea Islands of Western Alaska, but Western has been recorded only once and only from St. Pierre et Miquelon, the French territorial islands just south of Newfoundland. This makes Western House Martin the only species on the ABA checklist that has never been seen in the U.S. or Canada. There were a number of other changes that don't impact the ABA area. There are quite a few splits in the Caribbean, including palm crow and Antillean nightjar, among others, and the usual reordering of various families like parrots and some grosbeaks. But the Western flycatcher is the big change that is likely to affect birders, both positively and that all those eastern states and provinces that had the sweat vagrants are now relieved of that confusion, and negatively, in that many birders will lose a lifer. But that's the way it goes. You win some, you lose some, and maybe in a few hundred thousand years, we'll get it back again. On the show today, El Nino is causing weather weirdness across the continent. What does that mean for birds, both in terms of stressors and vagrant potential? Our friend Alvaro Jaramillo joins me to talk about all of that, plus the potential for penguins in the ABA area. The odds are better than you might think. All that after this week's Rare Birds. (laughs) 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of July 2023. We are well accustomed to seeing Alaska First Records coming from the western side of that state this time of year, but they come the other way too. This week, an Alaska First Record Eastern Wood Peewee was photographed and recorded in Juneau. This is a significant outlier, as while Eastern Wood Peewee is a somewhat regular vagrant to the western third of the continent, the previous closest records have been from central Alberta. And hot Limpkin summer rolls on with Pennsylvania getting on the board with a bird in Lancaster County. It's a little surprising considering that both New York and Ontario added the species before Pennsylvania, but all that is in the past now. It certainly puts Delaware and New Jersey in the pole position as the next states to get Limpkin, but don't count out New Mexico or South Dakota either. And to Maine, where a yellow-nosed albatross was seen by a whale-watching cruise out of Booth Bay Harbor this week. This is not a first for Maine. There are about a half dozen records of this species and several more all along the East Coast, but a noteworthy bird regardless. This is the most frequently encountered albatross in the Western Atlantic. It's worth noting that this bird is of the Atlantic subspecies, the entirety of which, all 40,000-odd pairs, nest on the Tristan de Cunha Islands in the South Atlantic. Some authorities, though, including the AOS and currently Ebert Clements consider it conspecific with Indian yellow-nosed albatross. That is disputed by other taxonomic authorities, but albatross taxonomy is a bit of a mess. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. This summer, we in the Northern Hemisphere are experiencing El Nino, a warm phase in the Pacific that causes all sorts of strange doings. Uh, What does that mean for birds, though? To help answer that probably complicated question, I'm excited to welcome our friend Alvaro Jaramillo. He's one of the hosts of the Life List podcast, a pelagic operator with Alvaro's Adventures, the author of many, many bird books, among other (laughs) things. Welcome back, Al. It's been a while since you've been on, on our show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, hi Nate. Hi everyone. Uh, it's it's really nice to be back. Yeah, it has been has been a while. It's I, been a long time. It's been a yeah. long time. Not not intentional, but uh, you know, maybe this is the start <laughs> of something good. Anyway, um uh, we we are in an El Nino cycle. I know so, so I've heard. Um what is El Nino? What do weather watchers consider to be the characteristics of this sort of phenomenon? Yeah, it it it's a it's a really odd uh phenomenon in that it's it's uh, some people see it as like an ocean phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Others see it as a weather phenomenon. And then I think uh, many people understand it as sort of one feeding the other sort of yeah, exactly. weather feeding the ocean, feeding the weather again. And uh, that's probably what makes it most um, complicated to understand it. It's really kind of like one of these things where winds shift. Okay. And so, okay, winds shifted. And it's consistently shifted so that the ocean begins to warm where it shouldn't. You know, mm-hmm. sort of wind moving water that's cold away from the American continent over towards Asia. That sort of sh- stops. And that conveyor belt of cold um, water that is moved by the wind stops. So then suddenly you get this sort of rebounding effect of, of the water warms and the weather starts changing as well based on that water. So it's it's like a, it feeds on itself and then lasts for a certain number of uh, months, sometimes years, and then sh- kind of shuts off, goes to a little bit, you know, it's never really a normal year, right? It just sort of goes yeah. and fluctuates and we can get the opposite, which is La Nina, which is cold water shifting into that Galapagos and Central Pacific area. 
But the Central Pacific is really the, um, um, I guess you could call it East Central Pacific, the key place where people measure water temperature and they figure out how far off the norm it is. And if it happens, you know, for three months straight that it's too warm up there, then they start saying, okay, El Nino. And then if it's above something like one and a half degrees Celsius for three months, then it's like major El Nino. And that's where we're heading to right now. We're sort of heading into that major El Nino. Um, So maybe maybe that kind of explains a little bit of it, but it's complicated. I I always think of it as a sort of a, a West Coast phenomenon. And certainly, you know, the West Coast of North America feels the effects of it more than most places, I, I think, or the West Coast of the Americas, I should say, because it, the effects go all the yeah. way down into South America. Um, but in the last few El Nino cycles, it does feel like people are figuring out that it does affect weather all across the continent, even as far as where I am. Um, it, a lot of this a lot of this research into how this how this affects feels very new. Like I, I don't remember El Nino being as big a story in talking about the weather of North America uh, as it has been in the last you know decade or so. It seems like people are really aware of the ways that it impacts weather across North America and even the whole northern hemisphere. I think what's happened is that um, you know the the first kind of big El Nino where it really hit anybody's attention in North America was likely in the 80s, 81, 82. And then sort of uh, it's happened a few times. There's been a couple of major ones after that, you know, and people in the West Coast started paying attention. But it was the shift in rainfall in other parts of, of the, the, um, you know, the world that sort of slowly started getting people thinking, hmm, maybe we should pay attention. And now with climate change, I think it's more on people's radar because everybody's yeah. hearing especially this year that this is the warmest temperatures we've had on land ever like yeah. records right a lot the last of couple anomalies of yeah and then on in the water too like amazing anomalies of of uh heat in in the ocean away from the el nino area so suddenly it's like oh we're gonna get this warm water event on top of warm oceans like what is gonna go on i think that's part of what what's happening but you know, even where, where you live, there, there's a, a general prediction that it could be wet. Sort of the whole yeah. south, south of the U.S. tends to be wet on major El Ninos. It's been a wet spring. I, I'll tell you, that. it has been a wetter than normal spring here where I live. Yeah. Uh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's been kind of moist here, too, um, or <laughs> at least cooler <laughs> than normal. Yeah. And then it's supposed to be dry in the Amazon basin and northern South America, like drier than, than normal. And you get a wet area too in, in Chile right now, and that's happening. That, that's super wet there. And it is going to be wet in the Galapagos and Central Pacific, which is happening, of course, right now too, including you know some major rainfall in, in northern Peru a, few, a couple of months ago and, and um, Ecuador on the coastal sort of western coast of Ecuador. So it's... It's already showing um, weather phenomena that that it that's it's affecting, and um, I also wonder if some things that as you know we'll probably talk about the birds, mm-hmm. but that's next question, yeah, <laughs> you know, like the the large billed terns that yeah, yeah yeah that have shown up in in Florida could could it be like that dryness in northern South America has created some effect there or um i don't know i mean that that would be 
interesting if there's more of them show up and if we can actually um, see if it's actually truly yeah. dry in the Orinoco Basin up in Northern South America or what have you. Yeah, it's interesting to bring those birds up um, because when they when they first showed up in uh, Florida, like like mini birders, I went straight to my uh, Howell and uh, Lewington <laughs> Rare Birds of North America book to have a look at what he says. And he, he actually points out that this movement could be because of the dry in the a dry dry period in the Amazon, and you know it's not just the the large billed tern. There was that dark billed cuckoo in Florida as well, yeah. which could also be because of the same sort of weather conditions. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to see how this larger weather phenomenon affects the birds around us, and how how does it affect birds where you are in California? You know, you're offshore yeah, this time um, of year. Are you seeing things happen? Not yet, not, not here. Yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the there, and and also, you know, sometimes it's difficult to say what is actually part of El Nino, what is correlated, and what is actually right. independent, but also showing right. the same kind of <laughs> yeah, situation. Said, it's all water. tied together. Yeah, <laughs> it's all tied together, right? So there is a, a warm water situation in Southern California that's creating a domoic acid. Um, problem. This is when you have algal blooms that are mm-hmm. sort of beyond the norm and you get this concentration of this chemical called demoic acid and it creates a neurotoxin in, in, uh, that's affecting right now mostly sea lions and dolphins. Hmm. So you might have seen it on the news. It was even like in CNN or something about these sea lions that they're capturing and trying to rehabilitate and the water's still warm so they can't release them even if they, they do better. Huh. They're, so it's, they're accumulating and uh, is that El Nino yet, or is it not? I think it isn't, but uh, it'll get warmer is the problem. So yeah. like the El Nino suggests that it could get warmer here in the next few months, and then we might see the local effects of birds here. Is that, um, a, is that a red tide, or is that Yeah, it's basically, red, it's basically yeah. a red tide, yeah. And, and it often happens when you have like really great productive time, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of food, and yeah, then it sense. gets warm. So you have this sort of like lots of food and then heat and then the algal bloom goes boom. Uh, if it was if it was just you know the food and then cold water, it would uh, it wouldn't sort of uh, snowball. So we're getting that kind of thing happening uh, right now in California. So, but I expect we will have some birdie things go on a little later as this develops. Have you been doing pelagic trips long enough and during? those other El Nino years to get a sense of what you might be able to expect with this weather system? Um, I did encounter, I think, actually some of the first trips I ever did before I was, you know, sort of doing my own thing when I was taking pelagics with Debbie Shearwater and Mm -hmm. uh, doing pelagics, you know, that were out of Monterey, Monterey Bay seabirds. And that it was, I think it was 97 was a big, El Nino year. And around then, sort of the first few, I was like, oh, you know, you see these offshore merlets all the time, I guess, out here. You know, I think we, <laughs> we I remember one day, I forget what date it was, where we saw Guadalupe. And they hadn't been separated even, I think, yet. Yeah. Scripses and Creveries yeah. all in the same day. And I think, I thought, oh, well, this all is the, just southern the way ones, it yeah. is. Right. <laughs> and then it never happened again. <laughs> so it's like, that was it. I mean, we've seen those things individually over the years, yeah. But 
uh, I did not realize how amazing that was at the time. And so that's something I, I could kind of expect if there is warmer water, we might get those Southern mm-hmm. uh, merlets moving North in terms of vagrants. The one I always kind of like think is possible is wedge rump storm petrol. Okay. That it could shoot up, you know, and then there's the magical, like the ones where you just think like this could happen, but it's crazy. Like yeah. Inca turn or, you know, a, um, Peruvian booby or something yeah, like that. This is waved albatross on the waved albatross. Yeah. Well, you always have these ideas that this is the year it could happen, but obviously it never happens. And you know, you know this to be the case. The more yeah. predictions you make, yeah, yeah, the yeah. more incorrect exactly. you end up being because yeah. they, they're never right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's pelagic birding. It's a crapshoot. You birding. buy your ticket and it's like the lottery. Yeah, you, yeah you, exactly. you hope to win big, but odds are it's uh, you know right. Maybe and you the, get a ten dollars scratcher, but. Uh, yeah and then sometimes you get the opposite you'll have you know a dove key show up or something from the yeah, north right. and you're like well, well that, that northern was northern canada out there yeah so. all right <laughs> so how did that happen you know yeah I'm, I'm just uh putting that one out there just in case you know it's completely the opposite you know well it's interesting <laughs> you bring that up because uh i i talked to seabird mckeon uh some some years ago on the podcast about particularly about you know melting sea ice in the arctic and how that sort of opens up this um channel between yeah. the the ocean basins atlantic to pacific and how that might have been behind well this is before the northern gannet showed up uh in san francisco but how that might be an avenue for birds like dovekey to end yeah. up in the wrong basin and just kind of travel down the coast and, and you, yeah. you encounter that so that, yeah, that's exactly. sort of a thing that could happen too now the weird thing is actually there is a small population of dovekeys in the north pacific so we already no have way. Them, really oh but, i had no idea yeah but i mean where do they nest Ooh, I want to say it's like, uh, I mean, don't they see them on like St. Lawrence Island or, uh, or yeah, Gamble so. kind of? Yeah, yeah but um, I've never been up there. So that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's exactly right. And, and even things that have two populations up in the north, they are divided like thick billed myrrh. Oh, yeah. You know, Fulmar. they're, they're yeah. divided, Fulmar. Um, and what will happen if they start coming together? Will, will we actually get. <laughs> you know them breeding side by side and not breeding together oh, which yeah. is my expectation i think these That'd are probably cool. different species but yeah you know with the fulmar and the thick billed myrrh my my guess and uh, yeah but yeah that gannet i mean we we nickname it we don't know if it's a male or female but we call yeah. him morris so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still there isn't it it's still I there remember when it first turned up like uh yeah. god it was like five years ago now no no it's like 10 10 10 years oh, time yes flies. 10 years yeah. time flies yeah like so we saw him yeah. what last week last week <laughs> Get out. morris sitting there in Farallon islands very and great it, he's, is he uh, seeming more at home than uh than it was oh, uh, before yeah he displays <laughs> to the cormorants and you know um it, it almost looked like it was on a on a nest, but I don't know if we were seeing like a nest platform that was in front oh, yeah. of it and was sitting on the southeast Farallon Island. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's just one element. Like it's so funny to see birds through human eyes because some people go, "Oh my gosh, it's so sad. It's all by himself." And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. maybe he's the happiest gannet on That's earth. Right. He's just living you know, his gannets, own life. He's the one gannet that doesn't want to be in the crowd of gannets. I, I know. It's like he left his hometown because <laughs> you know right. they they didn't understand him. And make now it he's the big like, city. Yeah. <laughs> you know, moved to the Bay Area, and you know, people are cool with him. Here. That's a story that everyone's heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. I don't know. It's uh, we see these words through our own eyes. That's true. When you are um, you're looking to plan a trip offshore, and it's sort of different 
this summer as it has been in years past. Do you plan on doing slight, taking a slightly different tack, looking for certain conditions that are unique or um, that or stuff that you have not seen before, or do you kind of you know plug along with the same sort of uh, strategy every time? Yeah, we so early early season trips are. I'll go to the Farallon Islands because that's when things are breeding and so forth. But our first sort of offshore trip tends to be late, mid to late July, so soon. I think our first is twenty this twenty second of July, and yeah, I'm I'm paying attention to where uh, there's people catching tuna offshore, which is a, this is weird. It's only happened the last few years, and it's now kind of almost like a standard thing that happens in the summer. Bluefin tuna show up, hmm. and before pre-pandemic, for example, bluefin tuna would have been like, never see it here. If any tuna was here, it'd be albacore, which is a slightly different species, different habitat. But so I always think of tuna as special. Yeah. Bluefin so, is the big one, right? That's the, the big one. The massive yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that there's tuna around, you think, okay, that they're, they're probably bringing the little fish up to the surface up to the deep water, maybe mm-hmm. we're going to see, you know, more Jaegers and Sabin's gulls and things that sort of are tuna, tuna associates. And um, so I would be paying attention to some of the, the fishing and also uh, where, where the whales are, where the food mm-hmm. is. And they, there seem to be kind of, um, they're patchy this year. There's a lot of whales, but they're, they're not sort of everywhere. So I, I'm paying attention to some of that. Uh, and, uh, we're going to go to places where we have seen storm petrel flocks in the past and then play it by ear a bit, seeing if the action is a little different in any mm-hmm. way. If uh, um, There are some things that sort of uh, long-term differences that we've seen in the last few years, again, like pelicans. We never used to see brown pelicans offshore. They were always right near shore. Mm-hmm. And in the last few years, there are pelicans out to the continental shelf edge. and. Wow. We feel that it's something to do with the distribution of anchovy and water temperature and so forth, where the food is. Um, so, yeah, we're always kind of like, you know, thinking about it. But like you said, it's so hard to predict. You Sometimes you right. have to go a certain direction because of the weather. But yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole pelagic scene is is so dynamic. Just in in general, you know, the ocean changes every single day. And then when you add in something as sort of unpredictable as the El Nino differences, then you've got, <laughs> it's hard to know exactly what you need, what you need to do. Yeah. Um, other than put yourself in the right position and hope you, you know, yeah. cross paths. Yeah. yeah. And, and some of these major El Ninos seem to shift distributions long-term of some critters like, um, previous to, I think it was that, the 80s, so in the 70s and early 80s, there were no bottlenose dolphins around here. They were mm. further south. And then one of the big ninos came and they shifted north and they've never left. In fact, they've become more common over time. And you you do wonder if if there is a global climate change situation happening, there's sort of a slow kind of move of some of these birds and ocean animals, just because it includes fish, and northward. Perhaps the Ninos are like a wave that shoots things further north, and some just stick, and others kind of retreat. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's worth kind of thinking about all the other sort of marine creatures as well. Uh, I know that some friends have noted, you know, in, in tide pool settings, some 
some you know species that are present now that weren't present 10 years ago, for example. Mm. Ocean creatures, pelagic animals have to be so dynamic just generally. It seems like they are in well-suited, particularly to take advantage of these changes when they happen. It's when they are so big that it's hard for them to, to react. Yeah. But they are so good at reacting in any yeah. case. But, you know, Nate, the big story right now is in South America. That That's mm-hmm. where, like, birds are going haywire right now because of the Nino. And, like, really? record-level numbers of some of the Humboldt current species north of where they should be. And, and uh, like, hundreds of Inca terns um, being seen and guanai cormorants and it's guanai not one-eyed but it sounds <laughs> one-eyed like one-eyed, one-eyed yeah. cormorant you, you know, like, to lean into that view. <laughs> yeah one-eyed and it's from the word guano so guano oh yeah they're the original the, guanas the, or, the original guano <laughs> which uh, in fact that is the the word guano comes from a uh you know indigenous word for for the yeah, marine bird poop that was guano <laughs> it's like w-a-n right? i think guanu w-a-n-u or n-o but that's where, where it comes from, from those Peruvian islands and, you know, in northern Chilean islands, that's where the word guano comes from. Yeah. Huh. So, I know that was a huge industrial center in like the 18th century yeah, for, um, yeah. because of the use of uh, the guano in uh, saltpeter to make yeah, you know, gunpowder and stuff. Yeah. Fertilizers. <laughs> fertilizers, and, yeah. yeah. It, was, uh, it was a big deal. And so people, people were... Guano, far, uh, guano miners. <laughs> guano miners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it clean, you know. For, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking of other words. Yeah, and uh, you know, so one of the things that I think is, is sort of backtracking a bit. Um, ocean water that's cold tends to be like nutrient rich, so it's got a lot of food, right? So it's upwelling water coming up to the surface and water moving from polar areas towards equatorial areas through currents, right? Like the California current, humble current. So these situations create like this food-rich environment, and it's based on cold water. So when you do have this warm water event, the Nino, all the food levels go down. And that's mm-hmm. that's the key into why birds disperse. Essentially, like this, you know, it's it's almost like that. You know, if you've been to one of those like sushi boat places where that, you know, comes around with all this food and you're like, ooh, you know, and you yeah. overeat every time, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what these currents are like. Yeah. And then suddenly the sushi boat stops, you know, and even starts going backwards and you're like, oh, you know, and, and these birds have to move. Yeah. And you would think that they would move south because that's where it's colder. colder. Yeah. And some of them do. I just, I just got like minutes ago, uh, one of the birders in in northern Chile found a brown uh, brown booby, which is which is pretty rare bird. Um, so that that's kind of a, kind of interesting. Some birds are hmm. moving south, but it's winter down there. So like there are big storms and all sorts of stuff going on in the ocean that is not necessarily conducive to good foraging. So what's happening is some of them might be going south, but they're they're getting into the wall of really bad winter if you, they get far enough south. And a lot of them are going north, which is into more tropical areas. And that's less where... Less productive, yeah. Less productive, but yeah. maybe more productive in the current situation than okay. hanging out with 100,000 of your friends when there's no food. <laughs> you just got to leave, you know? Yeah. So it's Ecuador, um, Colombia, Panama, and even Costa Rica that are getting 
some really unusual records. Uh, mm. And Grey Gull just landed for the first time in Galapagos at the first record. Christmas Shearwater, I think, was the first record for Galapagos. Um, and, and these are all probably due to this, this situation. There was a Kermitic petrol scene in the Galapagos. Mm. Um, and in Costa Rica, you know, some, I think it was their first Peruvian booby um, that they've, they've had, and maybe the northernmost one ever, just like hmm. recently. So all of those birds are just shifting and moving. And who knows what the fish are doing? That's harder to, you know, and everything else and the marine mammals. Um, but I, I wonder how much that wave of, of humble current birds will, if it'll stop there or if it'll keep on going. You know, could we have hmm. a Peruvian booby in southern Mexico? You could know, we have a humble penguin in southern Mexico. Or humble Mexico. penguin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> No, it's uh, dream big. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty big, and and may, you you do wonder. It's like, is it because there's so many more birders, and we have eBird, and we have all right. this, right. we have cameras that we're detecting so much movement early, or is it that this one is actually different? It's actually bigger and more effect than the one in '97 or the ones in the '80s and so forth. I keep track of sort of unusual records for the the ABA website and i i have a hard time telling you know from year to year whether it there really is something happening in terms of birds moving around or whether it's just because you know there are more birders and it's easier than ever to share your sightings it's a it's honestly it's probably a little bit of both yeah uh, that's going on yeah no definitely and um i and you know when i I think nate you probably feel the the same thing like these birds are leaving because they have no food. And mm-hmm. there's some mortality events in Sudi Shearwaters happening right now too, down south. And it it's sad and and awful, yet it's also exciting. Which I always have this really weird torn kind of like, ooh, you know, where are these I, records exactly gonna end up? Yeah. And then you're <laughs> like, oh, but it's because they have no food, you know? And and how many situations of like grounding, you know, when you have like a big fallout and everybody's like, seeing this great fallout somewhere in texas and you're like oh yeah because for every one of these that made it here i don't yeah, know how many died probably, crossing yeah. the the water and, and it's it's kind of guess it's part of life you know of, of birding and nature but i can't help but feel like this imbalance of like sometimes i'm like oh no and then like oh yes you know <laughs> The opposite of uh, El Nino, of course, is is La Nina, which is another event when, where you, you, you mentioned it's the cold water coming in. Um, have you seen enough La Ninas to kind of get a sense of what happens there as well? I assume that means birds are moving around in a similar sort of way, but you know, different species. I don't know what happens in a La Nina year. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happens is that some of the birds in like southern Mexico... Um, sort of middle America, all the way down to the Humboldt, just have an amazing breeding season. So the number mm. of juveniles that are out there is massive compared to the regular year. So I do think that actually increases somewhat your chance of seeing something unusual, but it might yeah. be sort of a one-off. Right. While when the Ninos happen, it tends to be like a movement of, of birds almost that you can detect in a, in a, in a more... Um, easily identifiable way like we can say mm-hmm. look at all those records right yeah. now of inca turns where they shouldn't be but you know a single 
weirdo <laughs> individuals somewhere on a La Nina could be because there's just so many more yeah. individual juveniles. Yeah, and they, um, they tend to be the ones that vagrate just in general anyway. So. Yeah, and and I do think too that if there's if you think about that uh, warm water being poor in food, if you have more of a cold water situation spanning from north to south, mm-hmm. maybe you have more of an avenue of actual travel you know that that some seabirds could do the but it it's it's really tough i think to to sort of say this is what happens that what you know and and winds shift too so on land Mm -hmm. birds you get a whole other situation that can happen in that if i remember right like isn't the year that they did the big year the the big year of the book and movie was an el nino year it's 1998, and then, wasn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. I and then, believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was like 97, 98. And a lot of people said, oh, you know, a lot of vagrants happen in Alaska because it was El Nino. And I don't know how much foundation there is on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it that, you know, Western winds from the uh, West are more prominent in Nino years? And if that's the case, this year's been a really great This year's been a very good Alaska year for year, right? last year, was too. And right. this year, as well, so far, yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah, see, last year was La Nina. So, yeah, hmm, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, see, it's hard. So hard. It's it so is. hard to like so many pin it down. Yeah. So many, and uh, I do think that it now with Ebert, we could actually probably analyze all this if you if somebody had the the uh, ability to sort of pull out the right numbers and pull out the right weather factors and just sort of go, aha, uh-huh, there is a, a signal here, you know, something. Yeah. For sure, you know, in this era of big data, uh, yeah. eBird is it's more more helpful than ever for birders to put their stuff into eBird, even the sort of seemingly innocuous checklists that um, that yeah. you, you know from their backyards. That all that stuff is is valid for sure. But I, I would, you know, if you're interested in the movements of some of these uh, birds down south, like go to look at maps, you know, an eBird of Peruvian pelican. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, because that one hasn't shifted much. So see if it shifts. Peruvian booby, Inca tern, Guanai cormorant, are sort of, and red leg cormorant too. The first record for Ecuador just showed up uh, hmm. recently. So look at all those sort of humble current birds and see what's happening. And there might be others that are laggards. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if diving petrel, Peruvian diving mm. petrel moves north to some weird place. And who knows? Penguins are actually really mobile. In fact, I, I feel like we probably already had countable penguins in the U.S., but but they've been just ignored, you know? Yeah, I remember when I first heard about the penguin records off the coast of California, and Alaska, too. Yeah. And uh, everyone's just like, oh, there are pets on a fishing boat. And I was like, maybe, but... Maybe oh, not. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. Is there, they're actually highly migratory, um, so it's so not what, what sort of keeps them? What sort of keeps them from... Shoot, like the I know that the horse latitudes kind of between the in the tropics are you know the the water doesn't move as much there as it does in the northern and southern hemispheres and that sort of keeps them but it feels like it wouldn't be impossible for for a bird no. like that who carries a lot of blubber um, yeah I, and distances. I think I think that's the key is the fact that the the latitudes that had no wind tend to be where you know they, that's why the albatrosses don't cross mm-hmm. and so but a penguin doesn't have that issue. And if it was just loaded with fat and it was a little crazy, kind of like this gannet we have, Morris. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, we could have, you know, 
<laughs> you know, Pamela the penguin. That's right. Kind of like showing up on the Fairlands. <laughs> and and uh, like I said, I think it already has happened. And there, there's a really great record. I think it was Humble Penguin. And I want to say it's an El Salvador from about 20 years ago or something like that. And and that I think is accepted as a valid vagrant, but the ones in the U.S. have not. And some of them definitely have been from captive situations, or they've been African penguins. But others are like legitimately. Hmm, let's look at this. You know, well, this is your year. <laughs> this is your year. This is it. <laughs> so, and one of the other things too is penguins swim, and they're not easy to see when they're swimming. So, for every penguin that you see on land sitting somewhere, there could be like many of them in the water that you'll never see. And if yeah. you did, you're in Pelagic and you saw this thing that looked like a penguin, you'd probably go, <laughs> I must have seen a tuna or a fish or something. Yeah, or you a, know, like like a like tiny ox sitting on the water. Tiny, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's gone. You know, and, and they're not they're not like most other birds that swim that can just, you know, you wait for them long enough and they'll come up. They they can kind of boot, you know, and be half a mile away by the time they come up again. So more like a dolphin than a bird. Yeah. yeah. More like a dolphin. They're kind of a a fish with feathers. <laughs> They're cool, though. Uh, Alvaro Jaramillo, uh, Al's adve- Al- Alvaro's Adventures off the uh, off the California coast. Please check that out. Do listen to Lifeless Podcast uh, with uh, Alvaro and our friends Molly and uh, George Armistead as well, and all all his books. Al, it's so so nice to talk to you. Uh, we'll have you we'll have you back on sooner rather than later. I think. Hey, thanks, Nate. Thanks, ABA and birders out there. Have a good time. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Madeline Baldwin of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Milan Carroll and family of Baltimore, Maryland, and Rebecca Keenan of Green Valley, Arizona, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Another thing you can do to help the podcast out that doesn't cost a single dime is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Your ratings help get us in front of more people, and we certainly appreciate that technical production is by john lowry social media is by maggie fitzgibbon you can find us online at aba.org on social media most everywhere is american birding association on twitter we are at aba i would only go for the real deal guano fertilizer from authentic guane cormorants because anything else is shampoo questions comments come to podcast at aba.org i'm Swick. thanks for listening stay healthy till next time